Chapter 14 of Katrina by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Wayne Cook. Chapter 14 The Bass. I had no thought where they were taking me, only looked here and there for the appearance of a ship, and there ran the while into my head a word of ransoms the twenty pounders. If I were to be exposed a second time to that same former danger of the plantations, I judged it must turn ill with me. There was no second Allen, no second shipwreck and spare yard to be expected now, and I saw myself hold tobacco under the whip's lash. The thought chilled me. The air was sharp upon the water, the stretchers of the boat drenched with the cold dew, and I shivered in my place beside the steersman. This was the dark man whom I have called hitherto the Lowlander. His name was Dale, ordinarily called Black Andy. Feeling the thrill of my shiver, he very kindly handed me a rough jacket full of fish scales, with which I was glad to cover myself. I thank you for this kindness, said I, and will make so free as to repay it with a warning. You take a high responsibility in this affair. You are not like these ignorant, barbarous Highlanders, but know what the law is and the risks of those that break it. I am no just exactly what you would call extremist for the law, says he, at the best of times, but in this business I act with a good warranty. What are you going to do with me? I asked. Nay harm, said he, nay harm ever. Ye have strong friends, I'm thinking. Ye'll be rich enough yet. There began to fall a grayness on the face of the sea, little dabs of pink and red like coals of a slow fire came in the east, and at the same time the geese awakened and began crying about the top of the bass. It is just the one crag of rock, as everybody knows, but great enough to carve a city from. The sea was extremely little, but there went a hollow plowter around the base of it. With the growing of the dawn I could see it clearer and clearer, the straight crags painted with seabirds' droppings like a morning frost, the sloping top of it green with grass, the clan of white geese that cried about the sides, and the black broken buildings of the prison sitting close on the sea's edge. At the sight the truth came in upon me in a clap. "'There's where you're taking me!' I cried. "'Just to the bass, Manny,' said he, "'where the old saints were for ye, "'and I misdoubt if ye have come so fairly by you prison.' "'But none dwells there now,' I cried. "'The place is long a ruin.' "'It'll be the mere pleasant a change for the solemn geese, then,' quoth Andy dryly. The day coming slowly brighter, I observed on the bilge, among the big stones which fisher-folk ballast their boats, several kegs and baskets, and a provision of fuel. All these were discharged upon the craig. Andy, myself, and my three highlanders, I call them mine, although it was the other way about, landed along with them. The sun was not up yet when the boat moved away again. The noise of the oars on the thole-pins echoing from the cliffs, and left us straight 
in our singular reclusion. Andy Dale was the prefect, as I would jocularly call him, of the bass, being at once the shepherd and the gamekeeper of the small and rich estate. He had to mind the dozen or so of sheep that fed and fattened on the grass of the sloping part of it, like beasts grazing the roof of a cathedral. He had charge besides of the solen geese that roosted in the crags, and from these an extraordinary income is derived. The young are dainty eating, as much as two shillings apiece being a common price, and paid willingly by epicures. Even the grown birds are valuable for their oil and feathers, and a part of the minister's stipend of North Berwick is paid to this day in solen geese, which makes it, in some folks' eyes, a parish to be coveted. To perform these several businesses, as well as to protect the geese from poachers, Andy had frequent occasion to sleep and pass days together on the crag, and we found the man at home there like a farmer in his steading. Bidding us all shoulder some of the packages, a matter in which I made haste to bear a hand, he led us in by a locked gate, which was the only admission to the island, and through the ruins of the fortress to the governor's house. There we saw, by the ashes in the chimney and a standing bed-place in one corner, that he made his usual occupation. This bed he now offered me to use, saying he supposed I would set up to be gentry. "'My gentress has nothing to do with where I lie,' said I. "'I bless God that I have lain hard ere now, and can do the same again with thankfulness. While I am here, Mr. Andy, if that be your name, I will do my part and take my place beside the rest of you, and I ask you, on the other hand, to spare me your mockery, which I own I like ill." He grumbled a little at the speech, but seemed, upon reflection, to approve it. Indeed, he was a long-headed, sensible man, and a good Whig and Presbyterian, read daily in a pocket Bible, and was both able and eager to converse seriously on religion leaning more than a little towards the Cameroonian extremes. His morals were of a more doubtful color. I found he was deep in the free trade, and used the ruins of Tantalon for a magazine of smuggled merchandise. As for a gouger, I do not believe he valued the life of one at half a farthing. But that part of the coast of Lothian is to this day as wild a place and the commons there as rough as crew as any in Scotland. One incident of my imprisonment is made memorable by a consequence it had long after. There was a warship at this time stationed in the Firth, the seahorse, Captain Palliser. It chanced she was cruising in the month of September, plying between Fife and Lothian, and sounding for sunk dangers. Early one fine morning she was seen about two miles to east of us, where she lowered a boat and seemed to examine the wildfire rocks and Satan's bush, famous dangers of that coast. And presently, after having got her boat again, she came before the wind and was headed directly for the bass. This was very troublesome to Andy and the Highlanders. The whole business of my sequestration was designed for privacy. And here, with a navy captain perhaps blundering ashore, it looked to become public enough, if it were nothing worse. I was in a minority of one. 
i am no allen to fall upon so many and i was far from sure that a warship was the least likely to improve my condition all which considered i gave andy my parole of good behavior and obedience and was added briskly to the summit of the rock where we all lay down at the cliff's edge in different places of observation and concealment the seahorse came straight on till i thought she would have struck and we looking giddily down could see the ship's company at their quarters and hear the leadsman singing at the lead then she suddenly wore and let fly a volley of i do not know how many great guns the rock was shaken with the thunder of the sound and smoke flowed over our heads and the geese rose in number beyond computation or belief to hear their screaming and to see the twinkling of their wings made a most inimitable curiosity and i suppose it was after this somewhat childish pleasure that captain palliser had come so near the bass he was to pay dear for it in time during his approach i had the opportunity to make a remark upon the rigging of that ship by which i ever after knew it miles away and this was a means under providence of my averting from a friend a great calamity and inflicting on captain palliser himself a sensible disappointment all the time of my stay on the rock we lived well we had small ale and brandy and oatmeal of which we made our porridge night and morning at times a boat came from the castleton and brought us a quarter of mutton for the sheep upon the rock we must not touch these being specially fed to market the geese were unfortunately out of season and we let them be we fished ourselves and yet more often made the geese to fish for us observing one when he had made a capture and scaring him from his prey ere he had swallowed it the strange nature of this place and the curiosities with which it abounded held me busy and amused escape being impossible i was allowed my entire liberty and continually explored the surface of the isle wherever it might support the foot of man the old garden of the prison was still to be observed with flowers and pot herbs running wild and some ripe cherries on a bush a little lower stood a chapel or a hermit's cell who built or dwelt in it none may know and the thought of its age made a ground of many meditations the prison too where i now bivouacked with highland cattle thieves was a place full of history both human and divine i thought it strange so many saints and martyrs should have gone by there so recently and left not so much as a leaf out of their bibles or a name carved upon the wall while the rough soldier lads that mounted guard upon the battlements had filled the neighborhood with their mementos broken tobacco pipes for the most part and that in surprising plenty but also metal buttons from their coats there were times when i thought i could have heard the pious sounds of psalms out of the martyrs dungeons and seen the soldiers tramp the ramparts with their glinting pipes and the dawn rising behind them out of the north sea no doubt it was a good deal andy and his tales that put these fancies in my head he was extraordinarily well acquainted with the story of the rock in all particulars down to the names of private soldiers his father having served there in that same capacity he was gifted besides with a natural genius for narration so that the people seemed to speak 
and the things to be done before your face. This gift of his, and my assiduity to listen, brought us the more closer together. I could not honestly deny but what I liked him. I soon saw that he liked me, and indeed from the first I had set myself out to capture his good will. An odd circumstance, to be told presently, effected this beyond my expectation. But even in early days we made a friendly pair to be a prisoner and his jailer. I should trifle with my conscience if I pretended my stay upon the bass was wholly disagreeable. It seemed to me a safe place, as though I was escaped there out of my troubles. No harm was to be offered me. A material impossibility, rock in the deep sea, prevented me from fresh attempts. I felt I had my life safe and my honor safe, and there were times when I allowed myself to gloat on them like stolen waters. At other times my thoughts were very different. I recalled how strong I had expressed myself both to Rankenkeeler and to Stuart. I reflected that my captivity upon the bass, in view of a great part of the coasts of Fife and Lothian, was a thing I should be thought more likely to have invented than endured, and in the eyes of these two gentlemen at least I must pass for a boaster and a coward. Now I would take this lightly enough, tell myself that so long as I stood well with Katrina Drummond, the opinion of the rest of man was but moonshine and spilled water, and thence pass off into those meditations of a lover which are so delightful to himself and must always appear so surprisingly idle to a reader. But anon the fear would take me otherwise. I would be shaken with a perfect panic of self-esteem, and these supposed hard judgments appear an injustice impossible to be supported. With that another train of thought would be presented, and I had scarce begun to be concerned about men's judgments of myself then I was haunted with the remembrance of James Stewart in his dungeon, and the lamentations of his wife. Then, indeed, passion began to work in me. I could not forgive myself to sit there idle. It seemed, if I were a man at all, that I could fly or swim out of my place of safety. And it was in such humors, and to amuse my self-reproaches, that I would set the more particularly to win the good side of Andy Dale. At last, when we two were alone on the summit of the rock on a bright morning, I put in some hint about a bribe. He looked at me, cast back his head, and laughed out loud. "'Aye, you're funny, Mr. Dale,' said I. "'But perhaps, if you'll glance an eye upon that paper, you may change your note.' The stupid Highlanders had taken from me at the time of my seizure nothing but hard money, and the paper I now showed Andy was an acknowledgment from the British Linen Company for a considerable sum. He read it. "'Truth and your name, Sieloff,' he said. "'I thought that would maybe vary your opinion,' said I. "'Ort,' said he, "'it shows me ye can bribe, but name no not to be bribed.' We'll see about that yet a while, says I. At first I'll show you that I know what I'm talking. Uh, you have orders to detain me here until after Thursday, 21st September. 
You're no altogether wrong either, says Andy. I'm to left you gong, bar orders contraire, on Saturday the 23rd. I could not but feel there was something extremely insidious in this arrangement, that I was to reappear precisely in time to be too late, would cast the more discredit on my tale, if I were minded to tell one, and this screwed me to fighting point. Now then, Andy, you that kens the world, listen to me, and think while ye listen, said I. I know there are great folks in the business, and I make no doubt you have their names to go upon. I have seen some of them myself since the affair began, and said my say to their faces, too. But what kind of crime would this be that I had committed, or what kind of a process is this that I am fallen under? To be apprehended by some ragged John Highlandman on August 30th, carried to a rickle of a stone that is now neither fort nor jail, whatever it once was, but just the gamekeeper's lodge of the Bass Rock, and set free again September 23rd, as secretly as I was first arrested. Does that sound like law to you? Or does it sound like justice? Or does it not sound honestly like a piece of some low, dirty intrigue of which the very folk that meddle with it are ashamed? I can again say ye shards. It looks unco underhand, said Andy. And were nay the folks good, sound Whigs, and true blood Presbyterians, I would have seen them uh, not Jordan or Jerusalem, or I would have set a hand to it. The master of Lovett'll be a bra Whig, said I, and a grand Presbyterian. I can nothing by him, said he. I had nay drunkens with Lovitz. No, it'll be Preston Grains that you'll be dealing with, said I. Ah, but I no tell ye that, said Andy. Little need when I can, was my retort. There's just the nay thing ye can be fairly sore of, Shaws, says Andy. And that is that, try as ye please. I'm no dealing with yourself, nor yet I am a-going to, he added. Well, Andy, I see I'll have to speak out plain with you, I replied, and told him so much as I thought needful of the facts. He heard me out with some serious interest, and when I had done, seemed to consider a little with himself. Shaws, he said at last, I'll deal with the naked hand. It's a queer tale, and I'm no very credible the way you tell it, and I'm far frame intin that it is other than the way ye believe it. As for yourself, ye you seem to me rather a decent-like young man. But me, that's older and more judicious, see perhaps a wee bit farther for it in the job than what ye can day. And here the matter clear and plain to ye. There'll be no skateth to yourself if I keep ye here. Far free that. I think I'll be a hunt handle better by it. There'll be na sketh to the country. Just as mayor huntman hanged. Good kens, a good riddance. On the other hand, it would be a considerable sketh to me if I would let you free. Say, speaking as a guild, Whig, an honest friend to you, and an anxious friend to himself, the plain fact is that <laughs> you'll just have to bide here with Andy and the Solons. Andy, said I, laying my hand upon his knee, this 
Highlandman's innocent. Aye, it's a pretty about that, said he. But you see, in this world, the way God made it, we kind of just get a thing that we want. End of chapter 14